anniversary of Oxamoxwa with the Garcia Birthday Band on Friday, June 14th at 8 p.m. at the Aladdin Theater in Portland. Oxamoxwa is a 1969 album by the Grateful Dead. Fans and critics alike consider this era to be the band's experimental apex. The Garcia Birthday Band is a group of veteran musicians interpreting and celebrating the repertoire of the late Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead. Again, that's the 50th anniversary of Oxamoxwa with the Garcia Birthday Band on Friday, June 14th at 8 p.m. at the Aladdin Theater. 3017 Southeast Milwaukee Avenue in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. KBU Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of the 2019 Juneteenth Celebration on Saturday, June 22nd from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. at the Clark College Hannah Hall in Vancouver, Washington. The theme of the 7th Annual Juneteenth Celebration is Together We Rise. This theme addresses the idea that together we rise above the fray of hatred, despair, and discord. The celebration features a job fair, panels, awards, contests, an art gallery, live entertainment, and more. Again, that's the 2019 Juneteenth Celebration on Saturday, June 22nd from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. at the Clark College Hannah Hall, 1933 Fort Vancouver Way in Vancouver, Washington. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. Good morning. You are listening to KBOO Portland. It's one minute after nine. Coming up at 10 on Flashpoints, they'll continue with their regular series, Julian Assange, Countdown to Freedom. Today's guest is award-winning filmmaker John Pilger. And 11 stage and studio features two LGBTQIA plus productions at the annual Outright Festival with James Dixon, director of Boot Candy, and Jennifer Lanier, co-artistic director of Ops Fest, which is presenting The Tragedy of Othello. And 1130 Art Focus host Joseph Galavan interviews Jesse Spies-Werner about the Pacific Northwest College of Arts 2019 MFA show. And now on Alternative Radio features Noam Chomsky talking about why we must have a Green New Deal. human species is facing questions which have never arisen before. Is organized human life going to survive in any recognizable form? You know, we're approaching the level of global warming of roughly 125,000 years ago when sea levels were about 25 feet higher than they are now. You don't have to have much of an imagination to know what that, that means. Well, Shall we race towards it the way the Trump administration and the Republican Party wants us to do? Shall we do something about it the way Sunrise Movement and Extinction Rebellion and Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez wants to do? That's the decision that has to be made. That's Noam Chomsky, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Noam Chomsky on the decision that has to be made. I usually introduce each program, but this time I'm preempting my remarks and cutting right to the chase so you get to hear more from Noam Chomsky, one of the greatest intellectuals of this era. He practically invented the field of linguistics. In addition to his pioneering work in that field, he has been a leading voice for peace and social justice for many decades. At 90, he is still speaking out on critical issues. I've been privileged over the years to have done a series of books with him. Our latest is Global Discontents, Threats to Democracy. I talked with Noam Chomsky in his office at the University of Arizona in Tucson on May 30th, 2019. 
You've often quoted uh, George Kennan, uh, you know, a very well-respected, venerated uh, State Department uh, official, uh, his famous 1948 memo, we have 50% of the world's wealth, but only 6.3% of its population. Our real task in the coming period is to devise a pattern of relationships which will permit us to maintain this position of disparity. Now, that was 1948. I was interested to discover that two years later, he made a statement about Latin America to the effect, the protection of our raw materials, that's a direct quote, in the rest of the world, particularly in Latin America, would trump concern over what he called police repression. Yeah, I said police repression may be necessary to maintain control, control over our resources. It's, uh, remember that he was at the dovish extreme of the policy uh, spectrum, in fact, so much so that he was kicked out about that time and replaced by a, a hardliner, Paul Nitze. He was considered too soft for this tough world. It's kind of interesting that uh, his estimate of uh, the U.S. having 50% of the world's resources is uh, probably exaggerated now that more uh, careful work has been done. The statistics aren't great for that period, but there are studies. It was probably less than that. However, it may be true today. Uh, in the moder contemporary period of uh, globalization, global supply chains, and so on. Uh, national accounts, meaning uh, the country's share of GDP, the global GDP, is le much less relevant than it used to be. A much more relevant uh, measure of a country's power is the wealth controlled by uh, locally, by domestically based uh, multinational corporations. And there, what you find is that U.S. corporations own about 50% of world wealth. Now there are good statistics. There's a very, there very good studies of this by a political, very good political economist, uh, Sean Kenji Stars, has uh, several articles and new book coming out on it with extensive details. And uh, this, as he points out, this is a, a degree of control of the international economy that has absolutely no parallel or counterpart in history, in fact. It'll be interesting to see what the impact is of Trump's uh, wrecking ball on all of this, which is uh, breaking the uh, system of global supply chains that have been carefully developed over the years. It may have some impact. We really don't know. So far, it's just harming the global economy. You mentioned um, in our book, Global Discontents, that any, I'm quoting, any concern about Iranian weapons of mass destruction could be uh, alleviated by the single means of heeding Iran's call to establish a weapons of mass destruction free zone in the Middle East. This is almost on the level of Samizat. It's b barely known or, or reported on. Well, it's, it's not a secret. And it's not just Iran's call. Uh, this uh, proposal for um, nuclear weapons-free zone in the Middle East then extended to WMD-free zone, uh, that actually comes from the Arab states. Uh, Egypt and others initiated that back in the early 90s. They called for a nuclear weapons-free zone in the Middle East. There are such zones uh, that have been established in several parts of the world. It's kind of interesting to look at them. They aren't in effect because the United States has not accepted them, but uh, they, they're theoretically there. Uh, and the one for the Middle East would be extremely important. The Arab states pushed for this for a long time. The non-aligned countries, the G77, that's by now about 130 countries, uh, have called for it strongly. Uh, Iran as uh, uh, the spokes spokesperson for the G77 strongly called for it. Uh, Europe pretty much supports it, uh, probably not England, but others. Uh, the, uh, in fact, there's almost total global support for it. It would, of course, end 
uh, you uh, adding to it um, an inspection regime of a kind which already exists in Iran, uh, that would essentially eliminate any concern over uh, not only nuclear weapons, but weapons of mass destruction. There's only one problem. U.S. won't allow it. Uh, there are, this comes up regularly at the uh, regular um, review sessions of the non-proliferation treaty, most recent 2015, Obama blocked it. And everybody knows exactly why, nobody will say, of course. Uh, but if you look at the arms control journals or professional journals, they're quite open about it because it's obvious. If there were such an agreement, uh, Israel's nuclear weapons would come under international inspection the United States would be compelled to formally acknowledge that Israel has nuclear weapons. Of course, it knows that it does, everybody does, but you're not allowed to formally acknowledge it for a good reason. If you formally acknowledge it, U.S. aid to Israel has to terminate under, the, under U.S. law. And of course, you can find ways around it, but you can always violate your own laws, but uh, that does become a problem. And it would mean that Israel's weapons would have to be inspected, not just nuclear, but also biological and chemical. And that's intolerable, so we can't allow that. So therefore, uh, we can't move towards a, a WMD-free zone, which would end the problem. Uh, the real problem is uh, pretty much what U.S. intelligence describes, uh, the Iranian posture of uh, deterrence. That is a real danger, um, re constantly regarded as an existential threat to um, Israel and the United States. Well, there are big paydays for a militaristic foreign policy, such as uh, the United States has. For example, uh, Li Fang, writing in the Intercept reports, large weapons manufacturers like Lockheed Martin and Raytheon have told their investors that escalating conflict with Iran uh, could be good for business. Oh, of course it is. Yeah, that's 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 a factor. I, I don't think it's the major factor, but it certainly is a factor. It's what's called good for the economy if you can uh, produce material goods that uh, you can sell to other countries. And uh, the, uh, the U.S. Uh, is uh, preeminent in military force. Uh, that's its real comparative advantage, military force. Other countries can produce uh, computers and so on. But uh, the, uh, uh, the, the U.S. Uh, is the, f the largest uh, arms exporter. Its military budget is uh, overwhelms uh, anything in the rest of the world. In fact, it's almost as large as the rest, rest of the world combined, much larger than uh, uh, other countries. Uh, the, uh, the U.S. increase in the military budget under Trump, the increase is greater than the entire Russian military budget. China's way behind. And of course, the U.S. is technologically way more advanced in military hardware and so on. So that's uh, the U.S. comparative advantage. You naturally want to pursue it. But I think the major thing is just ensuring uh, that the world remains pretty much under control. Do you ever make the connection between the external uh, violence of the U.S. state and what is happening internally with all the shootings and mass murders? Well, the U.S. is a very strange country. From the point of view of its infrastructure, the United States often looks like a third world country. I um, mean, if you uh, take a plane and from Europe and you land in Kennedy Airport and, and try to get into New York, it's like uh, being somewhere in the third world. Uh, you know, uh, in fact, uh, not for everybody, of course. Um, there are people who can say, okay, fine, I'll go in my helicopter, but, you know, those people. But um, it's, uh, and it's the same, a dr drive around any American city, uh, they're falling apart. The American Society of Civil Engineers uh, gives the United States regularly um, D, the lowest ranking in infrastructure. It has enormous resources. This is the richest country in world history. It's uh, got advantages c 
that are just incomparable in agricultural resources, mineral resources, uh, huge territory, uh, homogeneous. Uh, you can fly 3,000 miles and think you're in the same place where you started. Uh, there's nothing like that anywhere in the world. But it, and in fact, uh, there are successes like uh, military force or um, a good deal of the high-tech economy, largely, substantially uh, government-based, uh, but um, you know, real. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it's uh, the only country in the developed world in which uh, mortality is actually increasing. That's just unknown in developed societies. Uh, last several years, it's uh, mortalities uh, uh, declined. Uh, life expectancy has declined in the United States. Uh, the uh, this work by two major economists, Anne Case and Angus Deaton, which have studied mortality figures. It turns out that in the cohort, uh, roughly 25 to 50, the working age cohort uh, of whites, uh, the white working class uh, cohort, there's an increase in deaths, what they call deaths of despair, suicide, uh, overdoses, and so on. Uh, this, uh, this is estimated at um, about 150,000 deaths a year. It's not trivial. And uh, uh, the reason, presumably, it's generally assumed, is uh, the uh, uh, economic uh, stagnation since Reagan. In fact, this is the group that entered the workforce right around the early 80s when the uh, neoliberal programs began to be instituted. That has led to a, a small slowdown in growth. Growth is not what it was before, but there is growth, but very highly, highly concentrated Wealth has become extremely highly concentrated. Uh, right now, uh, according to the latest figures, 0.1% uh, of the population holds 20% of the country's wealth. Uh, the top 1% holds roughly 40%. Uh, half the population has negative net worth, meaning debts outweigh assets. There has been stagnation pretty much for uh, the workforce uh, over the past, over the whole neoliberal period. That's the group that we're talking for. Uh, naturally, this leads to uh, uh, anger, uh, resentment, uh, desperation. Uh, similar things are happening in Europe under the austerity programs. That's the background for what's misleadingly called populism. But uh, in the United States, it's quite striking. The deaths of despair phenomenon seems to be a specific U.S. characteristic, not matched in other countries. And remember, this is again the, there is no country in the world that has anything like the advantages of the United States in wealth, uh, power, resources, uh, scope, and um, so on. It's a shocking commentary. Uh, you hear a lot of uh, you know, you read uh, constantly that uh, uh, the unemployment rate uh, has uh, reached, uh, you know, has reached a wonderful level, uh, you know, barely 3% unemployed, but that's uh, pretty misleading. When you use actual Labor Department statistics, turns out that the actual unemployment rate is over 7%. Uh, when you take into account the large number of people have just dropped out of the workforce. The labor force participation is considerably b below what it was uh, about 20, 30 years ago. You count this in, there's good studies of this by economists. Uh, uh, you have a, about 7.5 roughly percent unemployment rate, uh, stagnation of wages, real wages barely have moved. Uh, since uh, the year 2000, uh, there has been a steady decline in uh, just median family uh, wealth. And as I say, for about half the population, it's now negative. There, there are many uh, kind of third world characteristics which are extremely striking in the, most, in the richest 
most powerful country with incomparable advantages. But in terms of guns, it seems the U.S. is an outlier. Uh, we have 4% of the world's population with 40% of the, of the globe's guns in this country. Well, there's an interesting history to that. Very well studied. It's a recent book by uh, Pamela Hogg. Who, uh, it's called something like The Gun Culture. But it's a very interesting analysis. What she shows is that after the Civil War, uh, there was uh, the gun manufacturers uh, didn't really have much of a market. Uh, they tried to. The, the U.S. Uh, government market had declined, of course. Uh, foreign governments weren't much of a market. Uh, it was then an agricultural society, late 19th century. And farmers had guns, but they were like uh, tools, you know, nothing special. You had a nice old-fashioned gun that was enough to chase away the wolves or something. They didn't want the fancy guns that the gun manufacturers are producing. So what happened is uh, the first major huge advertising campaign, which is a kind of a model for others later, an enormous campaign was carried out to try to create a gun culture. They invented a Wild West, which never existed with uh, you know, the bold sheriff uh, drawing the pistol faster than anyone else and all this nonsense that you get in the cowboy movies. It was all concocted. None of it ever happened. Uh, cowboys were sort of the dregs of society. People couldn't get a job anywhere, so you hire them to push some cows around or something. But uh, this image of the uh, Wild West and, you know, the great heroes and so on was developed, and along with it came the ads saying, if your son doesn't have a Winchester rifle, he's not a real man. If your daughter doesn't have a little pink pistol, she's not, you know, she can never be happy and so on. And it was a tremendous success. I mean, uh, uh, I, th I su suppose it was a model for things like the later on when the tobacco companies you know, developed the Marlboro Man and, and all this kind of business. Um, the This was the late 19th, early 20th century were the period in which the huge uh, public relations industry was simply was beginning to develop. Uh, it was brilliantly discussed by Thorstein Veblen, the great political economist, who pointed out that in the that stage of the capitalist economy, it was necessary to fabricate wants. Otherwise, you couldn't maintain the, the economy with the right profit levels and so on. And uh, probably the gun uh, the gun propaganda was probably the first, the beginning of it. And then, uh, I mean, it goes on, the uh, pushing up to the recent period, since 2008, Supreme Court decision, um, Heller decision, uh, what they called Second Amendment rights have just become wholly writ. They're the most important rights that exist, our sacred right to have guns established by the Supreme Court. Uh, overturning a century of precedent. You take a look at the Second Amendment. Uh, it says in order to have a well-organized militia, the right to bear arms shall not be infringed. Uh, there's a, the Up until 2008, that was interpreted pretty much the way it reads, that the point of having guns was to keep a, have the militia. Uh, Scalia and his uh, decision in 2008 reversed that. And he has, it's a very scholarly, he was a very good scholar. He's supposed to be an originalist. You know, you pay attention to the intentions of the founders. So the, you read the decision, it's interesting, you know, all kind of references to obscure uh, 17th century documents and so on. Strikingly, he never mentions once the reasons why the founders wanted people to have guns which are not obscure. One reason was uh, that the British were coming. The British were the big enemy then. They were the most powerful state in the world. The United States didn't have a stand, had barely had a standing army. If the British were going to come again, which in fact they did, uh, you've got to have militias to fight them off. So we have to have well-ordered militias. The second reason was it was a slave society. 
Uh, this was a period where there were slave rebellions taking place uh, all through the Caribbean. Uh, slavery was growing massively after the revolution. At the time of the American Revolution, I think there were a couple hundred thousand slaves. By you know, a couple decades later, it was maybe four million. Huge expansion of slavery, the most vicious system of slavery in history. And uh, there was deep concern. Slaves, black slaves, often outnumbered whites. You had to have... Uh, uh, well-armed militias to keep them under control. There was another reason. The United States from the is maybe one of the rare countries in history which has been at war that virtually every year since its founding. You can hardly find a single year when the United States wasn't at war. When you look back at the American Revolution, the textbook story is uh, taxation without representation, which is not false, but far from the whole story. Uh, two major factors in the revolution were that the British were imposing a restriction on expansion of settlement beyond the Appalachian Mountains into what was called Indian country. The British were blocking that. The settlers wanted to expand to the west uh, not just people who wanted land, but also great land speculators like George Washington, one of the leading ones, wanted to move into the western areas. Western meant right over the mountains. British were blocking that. End of the war, the settlers could expand. The other reason was slavery. Uh, in uh, 1772, there was a very important, uh, famous uh, ruling by leading British jurist, uh, Lord Mansfield, that uh, slavery is so odious, his word was, that it cannot be tolerated within Britain. could be tolerated in the colonies like Jamaica, but not within Britain. Well, the U.S. colonies were essentially part of Britain, and the, it was a slave society. Uh, they could see the handwriting on the wall if the United States stays within the British system, it's going to be a real threat to slavery. Well, that was ended by the revolution, uh, but that meant going back to the guns. You needed them to control, to keep off the British. You needed them to control the slaves. You needed them to kill Indians. If you're going to attack the Indian nations, they were nations, of course. You're going to attack the many nations uh, to the west of the country. You're going to have to have guns and militias. Ultimately, it was replaced later by a standing army. But you take a look at the reasons for why you had to have guns for the founders. Not a single one of them applies in the 20th century, 21st century. This is completely missing, not only from Scalia's decision, but even from the legal debate over this. There, there is a legal literature debating, you know, the Heller decision. But almost all of it is about the technical question of whether the Second Amendment is a militia right or an individual right. Okay, you can, I mean, the wording of the amendment is a little bit ambiguous, so you can argue about it. But it's completely beside the point. The Second Amendment's totally irrelevant to the, uh, to the modern, modern world. Nothing to do with it. But it's become holy writ. So you have this huge propaganda campaign. Uh, I mean, I, uh, as a kid, I was affected by it. You know, Wyatt Earp, um, guns, kill Indians, you know, exciting. So, uh, everybody's been through it, spread all over the world. You know, in France, they love cowboy movies. Well, totally fabricated picture of the West, but uh, it was very successful in creating a gun culture. It's now been uh, become uh, sanctified by the reactionary Supreme Court. So yes, everybody's got to have a... And by now, people are terrified, like uh, uh, the immigrants are coming across the border to kill us. Uh, we better have uh, a lot of assault rifles in the, you know, in the garage just in case they're coming. It's a very frightened country. Talk about the First Amendment 
we just mentioned the Second Amendment uh, in terms of uh, press freedom and uh, journalism, um, a trade uh, which has uh, come under attack from the self-styled extremely stable genius in the White House as the enemy of uh, the people. Talk about that and also the Assange case. Well, the First Amendment is actually a a major uh, contribution of American democracy. Uh, The First Amendment actually doesn't guarantee the right of free speech. What it says is that the state cannot take preemptive action to prevent speech. It doesn't say it can't punish it. So under the First Amendment, literally, uh, you can be punished for things you say. It doesn't block that. It was nevertheless a step forward in the environment of the time. The, the United States in many ways uh, did uh, break through the, with all of its flaws. The American Revolution was uh, progressive in many respects by the standards of the time. Uh, even the phrase, uh, we the people, you know, putting aside the flaws in implementation. But the very idea was a breakthrough. And the First Amendment was also a step forward. However, it really wasn't until the 20th century that uh, First Amendment issues became on the agenda. Uh, the, uh, um, at first with the uh, dissenting opinions of uh, Holmes and Brandeis in cases in first around the First World War, a little bit later. And it's worth looking at how narrow these dissents were. Uh, the first major one in the Schenck case in 1917 was uh, a case of somebody who published a pamphlet uh, uh, describing the war as an imperialist war and saying you don't have to serve in it. Uh, there was a dissenting opinion. However, the dissenter Holmes voted in favor of it in favor of the punishment. It was very narrow at first. In fact, the real steps towards establishing a strong protection of freedom of speech were actually in the 1960s. A major uh, case was Times v. Sullivan. Uh, The uh, state of Alabama claimed uh, uh, what's called sovereign immunity. Uh, You can't attack the state with words. That's a principle that holds in most countries. Britain, Canada, others. Uh, and this, uh, there was a, an ad published by the uh, civil rights movement, King's movement, which uh, denounced the sheriff in Alabama for racist uh, activities. Alabama uh, sued to block it. it. Went to the Supreme Court. It was in the Times. That's why it's called Times v. Sullivan. And the Supreme Court, for the first time, basically struck down the doctrine of sovereign immunity, said you can you can attack the state with words. Uh, that's, of course, it had been done, but now it became legal. There was a stronger decision a couple of years later in Brandenburg v. Ohio in 1969, where the court ruled that uh, speech should be free up to participation in an imminent criminal action. So, for example, if you and I go into a store with the intent to rob it and you have a gun and I say, shoot, that's not privileged. Uh, But that's basically the doctrine. That's a very strong protection of freedom of speech. Nothing like it anywhere, as far as I know. And uh, in practice, uh, the U.S. has not a stellar record, but one of the better, maybe even the best record in protection of freedom of speech. That's freedom of press, and that is indeed under attack when uh, the press is denounced as the enemy of the people and uh, you organize uh, your rabid support base to attack the press and so on. That's a serious threat. And Julian Assange? Well, the Assange case is uh, um, the, the real threat for us to Assange from the very beginning. Uh, the reason he took refuge in the Ecuadorian embassy was the threat of extradition to the United States, now implemented, uh, where uh, he will be, he's already being charged with uh, violations of the Espionage Act, uh, 
theoretically, you can even get a death sentence from it. But uh, what uh, Assange's crime has been to expose uh, secret documents that uh, the government that are very embarrassing for state power. Uh, the main one, which uh, really uh, uh, was, you know, one of the main ones, was the exposure of the. Uh, tape recording of the American pilots about how much fun they were having uh, killing people, you know, bombing, in the bombing. In Baghdad. In Baghdad, yeah. But then there were a lot of others, some of them quite interesting. Uh, the press has reported them, of course. So he's performing the journalistic responsibility of uh, informing the public about things that the state power would rather keep secret. Well, it seems to be the very... Um essence in terms of definition of what a good journalist should be doing. And what good journalists do do. Like uh, when, you know, Cy Hirsch exposed the story of the Milai massacre, and that was when uh, Woodward and Bernstein exposed uh, Nixon's crimes, that was, you know, that's considered very praiseworthy. Times published the excerpts of the Pentagon Papers and so on. So he's essentially doing that. Uh, you can question his judgment, should he have done this at this time, should he have done something else, lots of criticisms he can make, but uh, uh, the basic story is that uh, WikiLeaks was producing materials that state power wanted suppressed, but that the public should know. You're listening to Noam Chomsky on the decision that has to be made. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program, the complete uncut 80-minute version, and the book, Global Discontents, Threats to Democracy, by calling 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Um, talk about the uh, present occupant of the White House. In some ways, his boorish and grotesque behavior is a pretty easy target. You know, people can feel very virtuous about denouncing uh, Trump. But uh, Public Citizen says, every day we witness a further slide to authoritarianism under Trump. Are you concerned about that? I'm less concerned than they are. I think the system is resilient enough to uh, withstand uh, a figure who is uh, defying uh, subpoenas, defying congressional orders, and so on. I think uh, Trump is in many ways underestimated. He's a, a highly skilled politician who is very successful in what he's doing. Uh, he's... Uh, He's got two major constituencies. One is the actual constituency, the standard constituency of the Republican Party, actually of both parties, but much more the Republicans. Uh, private wealth, uh, corporate power. You gotta keep them satisfied. Uh, then there's the voting base. Now here, what's happened to the Republicans over the, the years is pretty interesting. Uh, actually, during the neoliberal period, uh, both parties have shifted to the right. Uh, by the 1970s, the Democrats had pretty much abandoned the working class. Uh, the last gesture of support for the working class was the uh, Humphrey Hawkins bill, 1978, full employment bill, which Carter uh, watered down, so it didn't really mean anything. But after, since then, the Democrats have simply... Uh, handed the working class over to their main class enemy, uh, the Republicans. Uh, some you know, little changes here and there, but it's um, pretty substantial. Uh, the Democrats have become what used to be called moderate Republicans. Uh, the Republicans, meanwhile, have just gone off the, the edge. They're, uh, I think there's a lot of uh, merit to the analysis by... Uh, two um, scholars of the American Enterprise Institute, Thomas Mann, uh, Norman Ornstein, they've just become a radical insurgency. You see it almost daily. So a couple of days ago, Mitch McConnell said uh, 
uh, he's going to, if they have a chance to appoint someone else to the Supreme Court in an election year, fine, we'll do it. Uh, when it was Obama, he said, no, in election year, you can't do it. And they've simply abandoned any pretense of being a parliamentary party. Uh, we're just up and it up to the jugular. Now you can't. But meanwhile, we're going to support private wealth, corporate power, uh, with uh, utter dedication. You can't get votes that way. There's not enough people going to say, "Fine, let's do that." So what the Republicans have had to do since the 1970s is to kind of try to cobble together a voting constituency on some grounds other than their actual policies. And it's been very interesting to watch it. It started with um, Nixon and his Southern strategy. Uh, the civil rights movement alienated Southern racists. The Nixon team pretty openly said, uh, we can pick up votes by being racist. They didn't use the word, but essentially by uh, catering to the racist elements of the South that are opposed to the civil rights movement. It was then picked up by one of the chief Republican strategists, Paul Weirich. He noticed in the mid-70s that Republicans could get lots of votes if they pretended stress pretended to be opposed to abortion. The Republican Party had been almost completely pro-choice. Uh, Reagan, George Bush, uh, Goldwater, uh, all of them, their position in the 60s was uh, uh, things like abortion. Uh, the state has nothing to say about them. They're a matter of between a woman and her doctor. Now, uh, Wyrick recognized that Republicans can get the votes of uh, Northern Catholics, uh, work, workers, and evangelical Christians who are a huge population in the United States if they pretend to be opposed to abortion. Instantly, you know, they all became passionately opposed to abortion. Um, and uh, that's now one of the leading planks of the Republican Party. Uh, guns is another one. We have to be pro-guns. We can pick up people this way. Uh, what are, in general, uh, a good part of the population, especially the working class, has indeed uh, suffered under uh, the uh, programs instituted since the Reagan years, the neoliberal programs. Well, we can't tell people, look, we're screwing you, so you have to find some scapegoat who's responsible for it. Uh, in the case of Reagan, who was an outright racist, uh, it was, uh, you know, the black welfare queens, uh, the black woman uh, driving up in a limousine to the welfare office to steal your hard-earned money, you know, all that stuff. Uh, now it's immigrants. The immigrants are coming to steal your jobs, and, or China is going to take your jobs. I mean, it's kind of amazing to watch it work. Uh, how is... For example, forget the immigrants. I mean, that's so transparent. We don't talk about it. I mean, there's almost 100% agreement that China is taking our jobs. How is China taking our jobs? Um, does China have a gun to the heads of uh, the CEO of Apple and GM and Microsoft and say, you've got to send jobs here? I mean, it's the corporate managers who are deciding to do it. So if you don't want uh, jobs to go to China, you should be saying, well, the corporate managers shouldn't have the right to make that decision. So should have the, who should have the right? Well, if you believe in democracy, the people who work in the enterprise. Where are we now? Uh, back to the gentleman named Karl Marx in the mid-19th century. We should have working control of enterprises. So the logical argument about China stealing our jobs goes straight to workers' control of enterprises, uh, the main theme of the American working class and the early Industrial Revolution. Somehow you don't read about that. So China's taking our jobs, immigrants taking our jobs, uh, welfare mothers are stealing from you, uh, you have to have guns, uh, can't have abortion, and so on. They've had to cobble together a voting constituency, including these sectors, and also the relatively affluent. Trump voters are mostly pretty affluent. And they, of course, are going to vote Republican for their own reasons. You know, Well, now what's happened in the past roughly 15 years is 
you take a look at every primary, Republican primary, when somebody comes up from the base, popular base, they are so crazy that the Republican establishment wasn't able to tolerate them and was able to beat them down. Uh, people like uh, Michelle Bachman or Rick Santorum and so on. Uh, the difference in 2016 is they couldn't beat him down. He was a skillful politician, and he managed to take over not only to win the nomination, but to put the entire pocket party in his pocket to a remarkable extent. And amazingly, he's been able to maintain the support of people that he is shafting at every turn with this pretense of being the guy who's standing up to you. It's very interesting to watch it. And there was an interesting uh, interesting article a couple of days ago in the New York Times, a long study of um, uh, Middle West, Midwest farmers. These are not poor farmers with a family, you know, a garden in your backyard. These are pretty affluent farmers. But, um, uh, but they're suffering from the um, trade war. They have, they're losing uh, their market for soybeans and so on. But they're still supporting Trump. And the reason is uh, we got to stop the uh, Chinese uh, practices. It's unfair to us. What? We won't go into that. And uh, Trump says he's in fa- he supports us. In fact, one of the main person they quote says, uh, Trump said, uh, I, farmers are marvelous people. I love you. And I'm going to vote for him. You know? So a little sweet talk and some... Uh, uh, also, some a little bit of cash doesn't hurt. So there's now $16 billion sent to farmers in the Midwest to try to compensate for their trade losses. Uh, where does that $16 billion come from? Well, it comes from the trade war. Uh, the trade war, the tariffs are simply a tax on consumers. That's what a tariff is. A tariff work the way it spells itself out. It ends up with higher prices for consumers. And it's not small. Uh, the New York Fed just uh, estimated the annual tax bite um, as about $800 per family. It's a pretty substantial tax inc- big tax increase under Trump, uh, which uh, helps pay off his constituency. It's a pretty nice scam when you look at it. But they're carrying it off very effectively. Uh, he's He and Steve Bannon and the rest are pretending to be the tribunes of the people, you know, defending the American worker from all these attacks. And uh, the Democrats have abandoned that. The, uh, by now, there's a few who are starting to talk about it. But as a party, they had pretty much abandoned the working class. In fact, uh, many working people voted for Obama. Uh, believing his uh, uh, nice rhetoric about uh, hope and change. But uh, within about two years, that was shattered by the 2010 elections. It was gone. The working people are going to vote for this guy. Uh, Trump comes along and says, I'm your defender. Uh, I'm going to protect you from not only foreign enemies, but uh, the people who are stealing your jobs. Okay, let's give him a chance. You know, The fact that he's carrying it off is very successful, and the Democrats are helping, helping. I mean, take this laser-like focus on the Mueller report, uh, Russiagate. It was obvious in the beginning that they're not going to find very much. Yeah, they'll find that he's a crook. Okay, we knew that already. Uh, But they're not going to find any real collusion with the Russians. They didn't. We're not going to find any significant Russian impact on the election. And there couldn't be. I mean, uh, you want to talk about uh, interference with the election, uh, campaign funding by the wealthy in the corporate sector utterly overwhelms the effect of any imaginable foreign interference. That's the real interference with elections. Uh, Whatever the Russians might have tried to do, it's uh, a piece of straw on a haystack. And, of course, it's nothing as compared with U.S. interference with Russian elections, let alone other countries where we just overthrow the government. Uh, but, so, but the Democrats just focused everything, all their hopes, on somehow Miller's going to save us. And let's not look at his policies. 
I mean, the policies are murderous. I mean, Trump's climate policy may literally be a virtual death knell for the species. I mean, it's not a small thing. Almost no talk about it. Uh, his uh, uh, the nuclear uh, strategy review, which escalates the threat of nuclear war significantly, that's not under discussion. Uh, the tax scam, which was just a gift to the rich and the corporations, uh, a double gift. For one thing, it poured a lot of money into their pockets. For secondly, it created a huge deficit, which can be used as a justification for cutting down social spending. We can go on and on. None of this is being discussed. Let's talk about the fact that maybe uh, some uh, somebody in the Trump campaign uh, talked to a Russian oligarch who placed an ad somewhere. I mean, it's as if the Democrats are working for him, like paid agents of the Trump campaign. Maureen Dowd, who writes a column for the um, New York Times, says, her exact quote is, my head hurts, puzzling over whether Trump is just a big blowhard who's filleting around or a sinister genius laying traps to get himself impeached to animate the base ahead of the election. Well, in a way, it's, I mean, he's a narcissistic megalomaniac. That's pretty obvious. Uh, understands nothing about the economy, doesn't care about the world, and, but... Uh, uh, he, he is uh, extremely skillful in carrying off the primary tasks that a narcissistic megalomaniac has to achieve. One is maintaining uh, the support of wealth and corporate power, which he's doing. That's what the that's handed over to McConnell and the rest. They make sure that that works. And it's working brilliantly. Corporate profits are going through the roof. Uh, you know, it's uh, fantastic. Uh, wages are pretty much stagnating. What more can you ask? Uh, but the other thing is he has to keep his voting base energized. And he's doing it very well. Uh, impeachment is another case. If the Democrats move to impeachment, I think they're going to shoot themselves in the foot. I suppose the House impeaches uh, Trump goes to the Senate. The Senate is in Trump's pocket. Uh, they'll exonerate him. Uh, then what happens? Uh, Trump starts making speeches about how I'm exonerated, uh, the deep state and the treacherous Democrats are trying to destroy the guy who's standing up for you against your enemies. Uh, uh, just like what happened to the Mueller report. Um, they were just walking into a trap. I mean, if you want to be concerned, he want to overturn Trump on the basis of his actual crimes, the thing to look at is not Congress, it's the New York State Attorney General's office, which is carrying out apparently careful investigations of Trump's uh, fraudulent dealings over decades, which I'm sure are going to pile up crime after crime, maybe enough to send him to prison after he's out of office. Now, that's probably where it's all going to come out. But in general terms, that's a minor issue. I don't, he's not my favorite person, as you can see. But as compared with the crimes he may have committed in, um, you know, the fraud in New York with his hotels and so on, that's very minor as compared with the fact that he's escalating the race to disaster. This is the most important decision in human history. We've got a couple of years to try to deal somehow with a, an environmental crisis. can be controlled. It's not easy, but it can be done. You waste a couple of years by trying to escalate the crisis. You might just push us over the edge. And in fact, I don't know if you've looked at this, uh, one of the most amazing documents in human history that came out of the Trump administration from a part of the bureaucracy, naturally. There was a 500-page environmental assessment study done by the Transportation Administration, the point of which was to, to argue that 
there's note that we should not impose new emissions controls on cars and trucks. And they had a very sound argument. The argument is, look, we're going off the cliff anyway, and car emissions don't make that much of a difference, so who cares? Their estimate was that by the end of this century, uh, global temperatures will have risen four degrees centigrade. Four degrees centigrade. That's way beyond what the scientific consensus says will make life unlivable. So what they're saying is, we're finished. It's all done anyhow. By the end of the century, everything will be destroyed. So I stopped driving. Can you think of anything like this in human history? Ever? I mean, Hitler wasn't saying, let's destroy the world. Of course, they're assuming that everyone is as criminally insane as we are and that nobody's going to do anything about it. But, you know, all of this passes without anybody paying attention. Let's worry about whether Russia had some minor influence on the election. Uh, Looking at this from outer space, you think they're insane. What's going on with the young people in Congress like um, Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Presley, and others, and teen activists like uh, Greta Thunberg of Sweden, uh, Haven Coleman of Denver, Colorado, young people involved in the Extinction Rebellion and the Sunrise Movement? That's very exciting. Uh, That's uh, really the hope for the future. These are very impressive people. Extinction Rebellion are great people. Sunrise Movement, which is, after all, a small group of young people, succeeded partly just through their activism, like sitting in on congressional offices, uh, got some support from especially Ocasio-Cortez, who's doing a wonderful job. They managed to put on the agenda the Green New Deal, Now, of course, it immediately got denounced as crazy, this, that, and the other thing. Uh, But it's a great achievement. There has to be some kind of Green New Deal if we're going to survive. And they managed to move it from obscurity to the legislative agenda, uh, along with uh, Ed Markey, the senator from uh, Massachusetts. That's a real achievement. And uh, there are very solid, substantive proposals as to how you could implement these proposals. Uh, The most detailed and persuasive I know of are um, by um, Robert Pollan, an economist at uh, UMass Amherst. It can be done, and these groups have broken through the silence and apathy on it. That's a remarkable achievement. In fact, it's... uh, It's the hope for survival of any kind of civilized life. This is not a small thing. The human species is facing questions which have never arisen before. Is organized human life going to survive in any recognizable form? I mean, you know, we're approaching the level of global warming of roughly 125,000 years ago when sea levels were about uh, 25 feet higher than they are now. You don't have to have much of an imagination to know what that, that means. Well, shall we race towards it the way the Trump administration and the Republican Party wants us to do? Should we do something about it the way Sunrise Movement and Extinction Rebellion and Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez wants to do? That's the decision that has to be made. So it's good that you bring that up because that's of extraordinary importance. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. That was Noam Chomsky on the decision that has to be made. I talked with him in Tucson, Arizona on May 30th, 2019. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 33rd year. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature progressive voices rarely heard in the media. Since its inception, AR has featured and archived the work of Noam Chomsky. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. 
To place a credit card order for CDs, MP3s, or written transcripts of today's program, Noam Chomsky, The Decision That Has to Be Made, the complete uncut 80-minute version, and the book, Global Discontents, Threats to Democracy, just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order on our website, alternativeradio.org. Special thanks to Sergio Atala. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. KABU Community Radio holds an open meeting concerning the operations and programming of KABU in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KABU Community Radio's open meeting policy is available by calling the station at 503-231-8032. Meetings will be conducted at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, Oregon, unless otherwise noted. The Program Advisory Committee meets the second Tuesday of each month at 6 p.m. Please call 503-231-8032 to verify if a meeting is being held. KABU Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of the Patrick Kimmons Birthday Remembrance on Monday, June 17th from 4 to 7 p.m. at Southwest 4th Avenue and Harvey Milk Street in Portland. Patrick Kimmons was born on June 17, 1991. This will be his birthday remembrance and protest of his murder by Portland police on September 30th, 2018. This event will have food, water, soda, coffee, candles, and opportunities to share memories of Patrick and organize against police violence. Again, that's Patrick Kimmons' birthday remembrance on Monday, June 17th, from 4 to 7 p.m. at Southwest 4th Avenue and Harvey Milk Street in Portland. More information is available at kboo.fm on the right-hand side of the homepage under Community Events. Good morning. You are listening to KBOO Portland. Coming up at 11, Stage and Studio features two LGBTQIA plus productions.